Psalm 66. I'll read the whole passage. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He, he is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear, the, who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Amen. Thank you very much, uh, Roberts. May I add my welcome uh, that to Roberts. Indeed, I have to say, on Monday um, afternoon, sitting by the sea where we are in the month of July, I just gave thanks. I gave thanks to Grace Church that July 3rd is actually a year, um, properly a year since we're together. It, and let me just say this, um, it's been uh, an utter joy. It's been such a delight to be um, amongst you in Grace Church, to try to be useful and to just experience um, the gospel together. People really from all the nations coming together to worship God, to get to know him better and also to make him known. So a lot of, a lot of thanks this week. Well, let's, let's hope that our time together now will be uh, peaceful. If you uh, slightly sort of fade away or kind of fall asleep. I, I won't pick on you. I won't disturb you. It's a busy week for many of us. For some of us particularly, it's a busy week. Uh, so um, we, we are going to be, we're going to be all right. Um, let me start with a question. How would you respond when someone, someone asks, how are you? Well, I deliberately, I, I asked most of the people that I met personally this morning, how are you? Just I wanted to hear the answer. What, what's going to be? So, what do you? What do you? How do you? How you respond when people 
say, hey, how are you? What do you say? I, I'm fine. I'm good. Um, not too bad. Couldn't ha could have been worse. Could have been better. Well, if you, if you would ask, for example, Robert and Gina here in front who, who let music, they've been around the Latvians for, for a good number of years, I think 11 or 12 already. So they would instantly um, reply, normale. <laughs> have you picked up this phrase, respond, normale? In Latvian, normale means neither good nor bad, which is by definition wrong because norm, it's norm, it's, it's good, it's good. But so Latvians say normal. How, how are you? How are you this morning? Now, what sort of answer does the Bible expect from us? Our psalm today helps us very much. Here is how we should respond when asked, how are you? Our psalm prompts us to respond like this. God has been very good to me. Can you say that? Is that how you think and feel as you come in um, this morning? Is this uh, the thought that you wake up with on the Monday morning? God has been very good to me. Well, this is how our psalm would have us respond. In fact, this is where our psalm is heading towards. Please look at verse 16. Psalmist says, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. When we will respond in such way, I think when we realize that our faith is something very personal, knowing God instead of just knowing about God, Christianity is personal. It is about the person of Jesus and the relationships with our Heavenly Father, God, through Jesus. But how does the psalmist know that God has been very good to him? And our psalm reveals that. In verses 1 to 4, we see that personal relationships with God is, is rooted in God's public truth about God's reign or rule. In verses 5 to 7, we see that this rule of God is proven by the rescue of God. In verses 8 to 12, it's true even... <coughs> If the believer continues suffering, suffering now, because verses 13 to 20, such personal tested faith affirms that God has been very good to me. So this is, I think, how our psalm uh, this morning works. So firstly, the rule of God is public truth for all the earth. The psalmist is encouraging us to cheer for the God of Israel who is king of all the earth. Look at verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. 
Give to him glorious praise. All the earth worships you and sings praise to you. They sing praises to your name. The psalmist is encouraging us to cheer for the God of Israel who is king of all the earth. But not just us. Did you spot the psalmist commands all the earth to do that? Sing the glory of God's name. What he says is that the rule of God is public. Everyone should recognize that there is only one true God. There is no Krishna, no Brahma, no Vishnu, no Allah, no Buddha. I'm sorry, all the Marvel fans, there is no Thor. There's only one God, and his name is Yahweh, the Lord. And what a politically incorrect confession to make in our multi-religious global village, isn't it? It makes us reevaluate how we are talking about Christianity with others, doesn't it? Are we inviting people to check out Jesus as one of the suitable, you know, alternatives? Or are we inviting people to give up on their old lives and the way of life and turn to Jesus as the only one who can pardon and rescue? Think about that for a moment. And of course, when, when we do that, when we do that, we think, oh, that is really, that is really tough. That is really challenging. But know this, it was equally challenging for the apostles as they were interrogated before the Jewish council in, in the book, in book of Acts. In Acts 4.12, we read and there, uh, how, how they confess, and there is Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom which we must be saved. Do you hear what the apostles are saying? There is no other God and Savior. And the implication is loud and clear, right? Turn to him. Praise him. Worship him. Otherwise, you will be a person of verse 3b. Look at verse 3b. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. You see, as everyone, even God's enemies, those who deny him, see God's awesome deeds, they come and they will come cringing. God's power is great. We are supposed to boldly confess God's mighty rule over all the earth because it is a public truth. But where can it be seen if that's a public truth? As, as your friends, as your friends, uh, as you will tell your friends, listen, listen about this God who is the creator of the heaven and earth. Look at his powerful 
deeds. They will, they will tell you, uh, show me. Show me, where, 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 are his, where are his deeds? All right, you want some proof, says the psalmist. Look at verse 5. Come and see what God has done. Secondly, the rule of God is proven by the rescue of God. Now, to be fair, when I took up my preaching notes of this psalm going back uh, a few years, I saw that I have gone somewhat um, a different route. I saw that I have brought people's attention to God's creation work. After all, this is what Paul does in Romans 1. God's mighty power in creation is a visible testimony to the glorious person of God. And while God's creation work is not an entirely wrong answer, I don't think it is where our psalmist is taking us. He is not arguing for the existence of God. No. He is arguing for the rule of God over all the earth. So when he says in verse 5, come and see, he points out the rescue of God. You see, in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and so on, we have one rescue after another. These rescues prove that God reigns. His rule indeed is over all the earth. But how does the rescue of God prove God's rule? Well, when God created, he was very powerful. We have to confess it. But no one opposed him. There was no one who could oppose him. Unlike with the rescue. Think of Egypt, think of Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh was a superpower of the day. He set himself up as God. He opposed God, Yahweh, and his rescue plan for Israel. But he couldn't stop God's rescue. Verse six, in Egypt, presumably God turned the sea into dry land. Then later, crossing Jordan, we know they passed through the river on foot. You see, God's rescue proves his rule. So all the nations should stop rebelling and stop exalting themselves and know that God of Israel is king. He reigns. Verse 7, he rules by his might forever. And I think the same thing is true in the New Testament. Think of the power of sin. It seems so great. It has separated people from God. It has corrupted people from greatest to smallest. But sin couldn't stop the rescue of God's people, couldn't it? 
at the cross sin lost. Jesus destroyed the power of sin on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse uh, 24, uh, the apostle says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sin no longer has power over God's people. Yes, we experience his painful presence, but it has no power over us. Isn't that such a wonderful, wonderful news? God is powerful to save. How do you measure power? What do you count as important and significant when you think about power? What do you hope for and what do you expect God to do? And you see, in, in light of the psalm and in light of the New Testament, God doesn't need to manipulate, manipulate the creation anymore to rescue his people. He doesn't have to make the, the, the Baltic Bay part, the sea part, or do other things, or dry up you know, the river for us to cross to the, to the Argonskarts. No. His mighty power in our life is demonstrated in us breaking free from sin. Through faith in the Lord Jesus, God's power works in us to break us off from sin, the power of sin. And, and there is nothing flashy about it, nothing flashy. The power of God is displayed in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. In the thoughts that we now think about God and the thoughts we now think about each other. Are we wishing well in our thoughts to each other and indeed to all people? It's displayed in the words that we speak to God and indeed to one another. We now can speak kind words to each other, grateful, the words that are building up each other one another and the works that works that we do for the glory of God and for building up his people we now can we have the power to um, to say and think in the way that serves others first how can I serve others rather than you know what's in it for me What's in it for me? So the rule of God is proven by the rescue of God. Friends, our changed lives is the proof of the rule of God over all the earth. Look at, look at us here today, this morning, from so many nations. We are the proof that God reigns. But the rescue of God is not instant. That's the challenge of the psalm. That's the challenge of our lives. It's not instant. And it brings us to verses 8 to 12. 8 to 12. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. 
who has kept our soul among the living and has not let us let our feet slip. For, O God, um, o God have te tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out of a place of abundance. You see the suffering in our lives may be the refining of God. His redemption is not instant. Now, we, we are so used to having everything instant in our, you know, the 21st century, don't, aren't we? We are used to having instant replies on the helpline, uh, instant messaging. You know, if you WhatsApp someone, you expect him to get back in the, the next five to seven seconds, right? Instant. Why haven't you been responding for a minute or two? We, we're so used to everything instant. Instant help, instant response, instant coffee. Well, well, I might never get used to this one, but... What about instant gratification? Indeed, we do live in an instant culture. And so we would really prefer instant redemption too. We sometimes say... If we don't say, we think, why do I have to suffer in the desert of this broken world? I thought Jesus is powerful to save. Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have these trials in my life? And so we would, yeah, we would, we would prefer instant redemption. You see, when Christians sometimes encounter suffering in their lives, they, they are tempted to think that either Jesus is not powerful, or worse, that Jesus hasn't saved them. I thought Jesus is powerful to save. Now, why is God letting these things happen to us? Why are there suffering and trials? in our lives because it serves God's purposes in our lives I know it's a it's a somewhat difficult answer but that's what our psalm says look at verse 10 for you O God have tested us you have tried us as silver is tried God allows suffering in our lives why to refine us, as gold is refined, as silver is refined, to refine us. There is no other way he can make us holy and godly but through the suffering. So, my friends, no matter what is going on in our lives, sometimes, we have to confess that suffering is not meaningless. Even if we don't understand it now, even if we are really going through some really hard things, we have to understand that suffering is never meaningless. And, verse 12, it will not go forever. 
Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I think the New Testament agrees. New Testament uh, views Christian suffering in the same way. Think of um, uh, books like 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this, salvation, says Peter, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Doesn't Peter say exactly the same truth? Notice people, uh, Peter is talking to people who are saved. They rejoice in their certain salvation now in Jesus. But at the same time, they are grieved by various trials. They are suffering. What's the point of Christian suffering in Peter's day? So that their faith might be tested and proven more valuable than gold. That's Peter's answer. So Christian suffering is, is not meaningless, my friends, no. And it will not go on forever. Here again, verse 7 uh, in 1 Peter 1, your tested faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. As he comes back the second time. Now is that how we view suffering and various trials in our life? Honestly, this is very difficult for me sometimes. To respond instantly with patient submission to God's wisdom and knowledge and power and work. In my life, it's hard. As the purifying and refining work of our heavenly Father in our lives, it's, it's challenging to respond in that way, isn't it? Are we not sometimes tempted to see suffering in our lives mainly as some kind of punishment for our sins? You know, I, I failed an exam. God must be angry with me. Or I, I can't find job. God must be upset with me in one way or the other. Or my relationships, you know, they've broken down. God doesn't love me. My health is struggling. Oh, God punishes me for some sin in my life. But friends, in light of the psalm and in light of the New Testament, nothing could be further from the truth. Sin has already been punished once and for all in Jesus. Jesus bore our punishment in his flesh on the cross. God has punished sin already. It's dealt with. It's dealt away with. 
And now I can confess and say to you that God loves you. If you're suffering or struggling with trials in your life, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. No, it actually means that God loves you. He's purifying. He's refining you. He's not punishing you because of Jesus. God loves, loved you even when you still lived in rebellion against him. Can you imagine that? How much more he loves you now when he loved you when you hated him. Paul says to the Christians in Rome in chapter 5, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's not punishing you. He's not judging you now. Paul therefore says in, in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why is there suffering in our lives? You see, my friends, God wants us to, to become more like Jesus. That's why. And he uses suffering. He uses trials in our lives to achieve it. He rids our lives from various idols so that we would learn to trust him alone. Indeed, that his people would bear a joyful praise and say, verse 8, bless our God. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. That's why God allows suffering in our lives. Now, uh, I don't know whether you uh, noticed that, but up until now in our psalm, up until verse um, 12, uh, our psalm has been very much about corporate praise, about, if you like, the, you know, the Sunday, Sunday morning worship. Um, the psalmist turns everyone's attention to God's rule being public truth. You know, everyone, everyone, all the earth. And his rule is proven by his powerful rescue, even when it involves suffering of God's people. Um, but now... Now he does something else. From verse 13, the focus shifts to this one individual um, in the congregation. One individual, one single testimony of an individual, and that's meant to encourage the whole church. If God's public display of his rescue is the testimony to all the world that he reigns and he rules. That single individual's testimony is for the, the whole church. Let's see verse 13. I will, I will come into your house 
with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips utter and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt offerings of fatted animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you fear God. I will tell you what he has done for my soul. You know, the, the picture we have here is that of a believer in the temple sacrificing to God. Now, he firstly speaks to God. He speaks to God from verse 13, and he performs many burnt offerings. The plural changes to singular again. You noticed? I will come. I will perform. I will offer. I will make an offering. In fact, these offerings are so many that others may have noticed it. I think it is important that these are the burnt offerings that psalmist highlights that he is offering burnt offerings. Why? Because when the burnt offerings are finished, nothing is left. It symbolizes a complete devotion to the Lord. And that is exactly how Paul views Christian life in Romans 12. My body, my body is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God in light of everything God has done for me in Jesus. I think we are meant to realize that our devotion to the Lord should provoke questions. The people in the temple might have wondered, what's, what's going on here? Why so many sacrifices? And so people in the church should wonder and ask, where does the sacrificial lifestyle of this or that person come from? How come? How come he's so generous with his resources? Um, how come she always finds time, you know, to meet up and, and, and listen and pray for this or that person? How come he's always there with, you know, practical help, you know, where, where, wherever a hand is needed? Do you want to know? Verse 16, Psalmist says, come and hear. Come and hear. I will tell what God has done for me. I will tell where it comes from. I will tell what he has done for my soul. So what has God done for the psalmist? Glance at verse 18. God listened to my prayer. God has not rejected my prayer. God has not removed his steadfast love from me. This is what God has done. He has been so very good in my life. I wonder if this is a fitting reminder to us as the church about our prayer time together. Even here on Sunday, how much are we sharing about how good 
the Lord has been good to us. I, I think it is um, uh, Robert, Robert H., um, Robert H., Robert S. and Robert H., who often asks people, when he does um, you know, prayers, he asks, um, so are there, any, uh, are there any thanks? Are there any you know, giving thanks for the answered prayers? It's a good reminder, isn't it? God has been very good to us. I know the danger, I know the danger there is that, that, that we can make um, it all about this life. There is a danger, and that's true. Although God is very much concerned about our life here and now, he's much more concerned about our character and maturity as his children. That is true. So what sort of things might we want to share with others as we give thanks? I have, I have become more patient. Thank God. Thank God that I have become more patient, less angry, more willing to serve, helping others in their trials, and so on, so on. I think it's a wonderful encouragement for the church, for us all to hear. There are, I think there are two reasons why we sometimes don't share these things with each other. You know, what God has done to our souls. Um, I think it's either we think that he, he, he hasn't been at work in our lives, you know. We just, just can't see it yet. Or we haven't been seeing that for some time. Or... Or we know that he has, but we just don't want to appear bragging about it, you know, about our progress. Which you might say the psalmist is doing at verse 18. You know, if you superficially look at verse 18, you might think that he's bragging about his progress. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened but hey, see how good I am. He has listened. Well, I don't think this is what the psalmist is saying, to be fair. You know, God has listened to his prayer, not because he was good, you know, well done me, but because of his mercy. Because of God's mercy, the psalmist was able to trust him. Well, perhaps when he saw how well God's enemies were doing, you know, he didn't cherish iniquity in his heart like we read in Psalm 73 in the morning. By God's grace, he wasn't angry or upset. How do we know that? How do we know the psalmist is not saying, oh, well done me for my progress? Look at verse 20. Because he says, blessed be God. He doesn't say, well done me. He said, blessed be God. Because of his steadfast love and faithfulness, I am who I am. And so my friends, in, in the closing, I think, I think this psalm leaves us with a couple of challenges overall. 
as we as we see the invitation to all the earth and as we see the invitation to the individuals i think we have a couple of challenges we are meant to ponder and respond to what god has done for us yes and what god has done in the world in all the earth now I, I love how one pastor describes the the change from the corporate from the corporate to personal and he asked the question can you sing solo can you sing solo as um, as robert will pause his guitar and other voices will quiet down i'm sorry will quiet down will you be able to sing solo well, I know when you think about this for a little while, it's really embarrassing, isn't it? To be at, at this spot. But our psalm reminds us that when it comes to our personal relationships with God and our personal confession, we all should be able to tell what God has done for me. What God has done for my soul. I think it was Luther... Uh, definitely, not Spurgeon, Luther, who talked about the two kinds of faith. There are people who affirm the general facts, uh, you know, and truth about Christianity. Like, you know, they have no problems reciting various creeds and various confessions and how Christ has uh, died and raised on the third day um, and ascended to the Father, his right hand, etc., etc. They know all about God. At least they know a lot about God. But is that enough? And then there are people who clearly confess Christ has died for me. Christ has died for me. Friends, that is what we do at the Lord's Supper every month. Right? We uh, affirm corporate and public fact. Christ has died as ransom for many. But only those who say Christ has died as a ransom for me are invited to participate in the blessing of the communion. So, um, can you sing solo? Are you able to affirm what Christ has done for you? Well, the danger, of course, is uh, the the other end of the at the other end of the spectrum, focusing too much on me. It is quite possible to focus entirely, you know, on my inner world. On my inner world, my heart, my emotions, how I feel about myself, how I feel about other people, how I feel about God. And such approach of faith, yeah, sometimes it's called pietism. There are indeed some good things about it. It turns our attention to the personal relationships with Jesus, to the need for searching our heart, for the for the repentance from sins. There are some good things in it. However, it can quickly become about 
my personal holiness that is provided at best by my personal Jesus and at worst by my self-righteous efforts. That's the danger. The danger is that such people never engage uh, with the surrounding culture because their faith is not public at all. So friends, while we should be able to say what God has done for my soul, how God has been good in my life, Christianity is also about proclaiming what God has done in all the earth through Jesus. It is public. So that's what we've seen in Absalom, right? The rule of God is a public truth to all. God has something to say about everything. How the society is run, how people are treated. God has something to say about government and politics and education and medicine. Even cricket, perhaps. And we need to learn to affirm this. So which is, which is your challenge, personally? Is it that the pietist Christian, you should be reflecting more on what God has done to your soul, grow in gratefulness, thankfulness, how God has been good in your life? Or is, is your challenge that the public Christian being bold and straightforward about what God has done in all the earth, how God calls all people to repentance and turning to Jesus. Which one are you? And first, how can we encourage one another, others' faith, to be more deeply personal but also public? Maybe instead of asking, how are you, next time, we should be asking one another, how has God been good to you this week? Tell me, how, ha how have he been, uh, been good to you this week? Our personal testimony really encourages and builds up the church. Come in here, I will tell you what God has done for my soul. But also we should encourage one another to live out our faith in the public arena. This is God's world. He hasn't given it up. He is king. He has proven his rule by numerous historic rescues. Largest of all being through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his son. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. Let's pray. Indeed, almighty God and our heavenly father, you have been so good to us. But please forgive us when we've lived our days and weeks sometimes without thanking you what you have done
for our souls, how you have sustained our lives, both spiritually and materially, how you keep cleansing and purifying us by your spirit, through your word, even as we experience trials and sufferings in our life. But you do that because you love us and you want to see us more like Jesus. Father, please forgive us that we are so quick to grumble and complain and so slow to praise you and to give thanks to you. Please make us people that keep reflecting and confessing and sharing with one another how you have been good in our lives. But Father, please grow us as your people, as Grace Church that remembers that your truth is a public truth. Please remind us that we continue being a one Timothy church, a pillar and buttress of the truth that holds out the salvation of Jesus to everyone. So Father, please, please help us to remember these two things, that personal relationships with you through Jesus filled with thanksgiving and praise and worship. And our task and indeed our duty to make you known to many people, indeed to all people here in Riga. In Jesus' name we pray all that. Amen.